Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Cheney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney Galuzzi and Howard LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors and the CBA Executive Committee and the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. Finally, I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, let's jump right in. Uh, I'm really happy uh, to introduce our uh, guest today, uh, Ellie Zweibel. Uh, is uh, coming on to uh, the podcast. And I think he's got a really interesting practice area that's going to be really uh, useful and and, uh, entertaining for a lot of our uh, law student and young lawyer uh, listeners. Uh, Prior to attending law school, Ellie taught a variety of subjects and a diversity of students in the Detroit area, Chicago, Portland, Zhenzhen and Nanjing. Did I pronounce that correctly? Shenzhen. Shenzhen and Nanjing. Uh, Through these experiences, Ellie developed a passion for student and family advocacy. During law school, Ellie engaged in experiential learning opportunities as often as possible with movement and power-building nonprofit organizations, where he learned the importance of holistic and interdisciplinary approaches to legal advocacy. With the United States Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, where he gained experience and familiarity with special education law, and with the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, where he contributed to investigating police departments, prisons, and mental health facilities for patterns and practices of discrimination. While in the University of Denver Civil Rights Clinic, Ellie successfully petitioned President Obama to grant clemency to two individuals serving life sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. After spending one year as a judicial law clerk for Judge Norman Sierra in the 20th Judicial District, Ellie is thrilled to now zealously represent students and their families in Colorado schools and courts. Ellie has represented students, parents, and guardians in educational and juvenile justice matters through his solo practice since September of 2017, and now works as Colorado Juvenile Defender Center's Education First Program Director. Uh, Well, Ellie, uh, welcome to the podcast, and uh, pleasure having you here today. Thank you so much for having me. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's always uh, it's always interesting, uh, you know, the different bios and stuff. Yours was uh, it was short and to the point, uh, which I always appreciate uh, having to read those. Um, uh, I kind of like to start off uh, each episode the same way uh, by just getting to know you a little bit and kind of introducing you to um, our listeners. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, where you're from? Absolutely. Uh, I was born in Littleton, uh, raised in Centennial as soon as uh, my part of Littleton was redistricted. (laughs) Um, And for uh, college, I went off to University of Michigan um, for undergraduate. Um, I graduated with a bachelor's in English and global media studies, which was University of Michigan's fancy way of saying film. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So I minored in film. uh, And from there, I, I got into my teaching career. And did you go to uh, undergrad wanting to be a teacher or was that something that kind of came up while you were at University of Michigan or tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, while I was at University of Michigan, I started working with an organization called the Prisoners Creative Arts Project. Mm -hmm. Um, And through that organization, I was able to facilitate uh, various creative writing workshops uh, around the Detroit area, specifically in juvenile detention facility and in an adult male correctional facility. Uh, And that experience really instilled in me the passion for teaching. And so you were going into kind of these juvenile and adult kind of prison facilities and and teaching them writing. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. So typically we would prepare, um, you know, a couple of creative writing exercises. Um, We would bring them in and have two or three writing exercises a week um, and see what uh, folks would put out there. Um, Really powerful work uh, tended to be with the uh, younger folk. We would get amazing poetry uh, with the adult males. We would also get some excellent poetry, but mostly some really wonderful short fiction. 
Um, and once a semester, we would organize a reading where individuals from the outside could come in uh, and, and see kind of the, uh, I don't know, uh, open mic of sorts. And what drew you to that kind of uh, prison and prisoner um, kind of work? Was that something that you had uh, always been interested in or was that something that kind of developed while you were in college? Or tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I grew up uh, in a Jewish family and a strong message of um, social justice. In Hebrew, there's this expression. um, It's kind of a lesson from the Torah, tikkun olam, which means to repair the world, to clean the world. Um, and it's, it's sort of this obligation uh, imposed upon the Jewish people to give back to the community and leave the world in a better place than where, how, how you arrived in it. Um, so that was kind of a, a core value I had growing up. How it relates to the work I was doing in various detention facilities and correctional facilities, um, I think... What happened was when I was signing up for courses, uh, you know, as an undergraduate, I saw the opportunity that there was this one really interesting English course uh-huh. uh, that um, the the reading list included Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and some Jonathan Kozal and, and various other authors and writers who had really explored um, the intersection of race, class, poverty, gender, mm-hmm. and systems of oppression. Simultaneously with this class, we would be going into correctional facilities to facilitate a, a creative writing workshop. And cool. there was just something about that blend that seemed like an amazing opportunity where I would also be getting undergraduate credit. Right, um, right. Win-win for everybody. Exactly. So it just kind of hit everything, all all cylinders for me. And uh, I, I, from looking at the, uh, the list of kind of where you have taught... Uh, it, it looks like you did a little bit of teaching in China. Is that where those, where those places are? Yeah. So Shenzhen is a city in Southeast China. Uh, it is literally just across the border from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, where my apartment in, in Shenzhen, I, I could literally walk to the border. Okay. Um, it's also where I, I'm pretty sure all Apple products are made. Um, it's an interesting little town and in that's uh, a, a town of, I think, 15 million people. Um, <laughs> so not too little per se. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but it didn't actually exist now 40 years ago. Um, it was sort of this experiment for China. And so it's become this uh, capitalist enclave almost within the communist country. So I spent a year teaching English there. Um, my second year in China, I was teaching uh, in Nanjing, which is a little bit further north. And what brought you to China? I mean, what uh, you know, so you were teaching in America and kind of had this focus on, uh, you know, prisons and, and things like that and, and exploring that social justice aspect. Um, did you just kind of want to, you know, see the world? And so you thought that China would be good or, or what kind of brought you there? Uh, a wonderful confluence of luck and hustle, which I think is actually a story throughout um, my life. Sure. Uh, where the the luck is both uh, bad and good. The bad luck is that I graduated from college in 2009. Uh, so <laughs> Great time to be finding a job. <laughs> really wonderful time to be coming out of undergrad with a bachelor's in English, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, um, yeah. Lots of hiring happening. Uh, so, I mean, I, at the time, I applied to over 200 jobs. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I used to know the exact number, but it's painful enough that I've forgotten it. Um, <laughs> Those were the dark times. Yeah, exactly. I and there were jobs all across the board. Anything from you know bar back, waiting tables, uh, library acquisitions assistant, temp jobs, everything and anything in between. And the economy was in the trash, and I couldn't I couldn't find anything. Um, I knew that teaching was something I was interested in. Fortunately, I had this connection to University of Michigan. They were promoting this program to teach English for a year in China, uh, and. I was accepted into the program, so that was the good luck side of it. Um, just the timing was right, and uh, it worked out. Nice. Um, at, at that time, were you thinking law school at all? Um, was that something that you know you'd always kind of seen as like uh, something that you would eventually do? Or tell us about your journey from you know teacher and then to China, and then you know what made you decide that you know law school was where you needed to be. Sure. Uh, 
the short answer is no. I didn't know for sure I wanted to go to law school. Um, I had taken the LSAT, but I didn't take a prep course. I didn't have a tutor or anything like that. Just kind of blindly went in and saw how I would do. Um, we don't need to talk about what my score was that first time around. It was not great. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> um, and I think that was just reflective of I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with sure. the JD. And um, I I wanted to pursue teaching. It honestly wasn't until I came back from China um, and spent some time teaching in Chicago. I was teaching a high school class. Specifically, I was as part of an AmeriCorps mm-hmm. assignment. Um, I was teaching uh, a media class, actually, a media production class uh, on the west side of Chicago in the North Lawndale neighborhood. And um, my students in this class would, at the beginning of the semester, learn very basic media decoding skills. So learning how to see an advertisement or an ad and and, and say, uh, you know, here are the racist, sexist, uh, heteronormative, ableist, whatever other biased imagery might be replicated in this image. And then over the course of the semester, we would impart to them, uh, you know, recording skills, uh, both audio and video. Sure. So that by the end of the semester, they were making 30 to 30 second to one minute long public service announcements about issues that they thought were relevant in their low income housing neighborhoods. Very cool. Um, yeah, I, I was very jealous. And then yeah, we had, that's a, awesome. We had a few advanced students who were making senior projects, uh, that were like 10 minute long documentaries also about subject matters of their, of their choosing. Um, one of them chose to make a documentary about the disparity in mortality rates between African American women and white women who are best with breast cancer. Sure. Um, another student made, uh, a 10 minute documentary about code switching. I mean, fantastic stuff. And, In the course of this work, um, I saw that my students were struggling with so many issues outside of the classroom. Right. In order to engage in what we were doing in the classroom, they had to uh, kind of check some baggage at the door um, while bringing their authentic selves and and being able to engage in a raw, genuine way. Um, And for the most part, they did that. But literally, the second they would step into the hallways, they would have school resource officers hassling them. They would they wouldn't have safe passage home. Um, you know, I had students who were quite frankly slinging drugs on the corner after school because they needed to help provide food right. for their family. Right. Um, and at that point in time, I was starting to articulate though. I didn't necessarily have the vocabulary. I was starting to articulate in my own mind, this, this term school, to prison pipeline and, and seeing how it was impacting my students and I wanted to be a more robust ally advocate for them. And to me, getting a JD was the route to that advocacy. And, you know, for our listeners that may not be familiar uh, with that term, uh, can you give us a brief description of what the school to prison pipeline is? Sure. The school to prison pipeline is a uh, system of policies uh, that can either be at the school level or in the um, criminal or delinquency system that specifically target and criminalize behaviors that are part and parcel to being young. Um, it's a system and practices that channel students from their school into our carceral state. And so it was that system, I guess, that you kind of felt like, you know, getting a JD would enable you to kind of fight against and enable you to kind of be part of the uh, you know, solution or part of one of the many solutions to, to try to address that issue. Is that right? That's right. Uh, absolutely. So what we know is that harsh school discipline policies, the presence of law enforcement at schools, all of these things, even the presence of metal detectors at schools, uh, not only target and and literally channel students in through ticketing or arrests or referrals to law enforcement into our carceral state, but they also push, just quite frankly, students out of the classroom. Um, And we know that more time spent out of the classroom leads to less engagement in your education, leads to less engagement, pro-social engagement in your community, um, and kind of predisposes folks to living in a carceral state. We also know that there is a disparate impact on students of color and students with disabilities, as well as students who identify as LGBTQIA. So just for example, here in Colorado, we know that in the last six years, uh, black students are three times more likely to be referred for suspensions than white students. Latinx students are 1.7 times more likely. 
Um, we also know that students with disabilities are two times more likely than students without disabilities to be referred to law enforcement. And, and it seems that that system basically, you know, as you were talking about, you know, being in the classroom is is one of the things that can actually help. And so whenever we have, you know, any type of behavioral problem, whether there is an actual behavioral problem or just a perceived behavioral problem, uh, we are you know, essentially suspending these students and kicking them out of school, which in turn makes the matter worse. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? That that kind of, it's almost like a snowball effect that the more that happens, you know, almost the worse the behavior may become. And it kind of just kind of cycles until that person eventually, you know, goes to prison or, you know, has some other type of serious consequence. Absolutely. Uh, again, with the disparate targeting and impact that uh, school discipline has, um, we know that the students who are most often targeted and most often disciplined are the ones who need the most support. Um, they're the ones that need the most interventions, um, quite frankly. And so when we push them out of the classroom, the one space where they, they should be feeling safe, where they should feel like they can go any day of the week, that they are embraced, that they're going to be taught, that they're going to be provided uh, an opportunity to excel and become the best person that they possibly can be. When we push them out of that, they're literally losing that time that day, and then they have to worry about making up class um, and, and catching up to their peers when we already know there's an education gap that they have to reconcile. So we're going to pick up uh, this topic a, a little bit later in the episode. Um, I'd like to shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, the type of law that you practice and kind of what the day-to-day uh, looks like. So, um, you know, from your website and everything, it, 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 it seems that you, you practice essentially what is juvenile civil rights um, law. And, and it seems that that has kind of uh, arisen from, you know, what we've just been talking about and kind of what you saw and what you identified as the problem and what drove you uh, to law school. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, what it is exactly that you do and kind of what your practice area is? Absolutely. So juvenile civil rights law, I'm not sure how many people you'll see out there who, who claim the moniker. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was really interesting when I read it. I was like, I haven't really heard of that one, you know, but yeah. super fascinating. Yeah, I felt like it was kind of shorthand to explain that I work at the intersection of education law and juvenile defense um, for the most part. I, I do work on some adult cases here and there, but um, we, we can talk about that later. Um, so I make sure um, I wear a few hats. I'll sure. put it this way. And one of the hats I'll focus on right now, since you're asking about the day-to-day, is I contract with the Office of the Alternate Defense Council with juvenile de- defense teams. Um, I work specifically as a mitigation specialist. Uh, so being an expert in education law, specifically in special education law, I will often investigate, gather, analyze education history, mental health history, um, and integrate that into a mitigation strategy, um, whether that's early enough to influence plea negotiations um, or if a kiddo is being charged as an adult and we're talking about preparing for a reverse transfer hearing um, and trying to present arguments to a judge, um, wherever it is in the life of a case, um, I will make sure that either the district attorney um, or the judge is aware of Uh, where the ball was dropped for this individual student in the past and how if they had received everything that they should have received as a student with disabilities, as a student experiencing trauma, um, that they may not be where they are right now. And so for, for our listeners that, you know, aren't super familiar with either juvenile defense or or criminal defense, um, when we talk about mitigation, it's really an attempt to explain to, other individuals, whether those are DAs, you know, prosecutors, judges, you know, juries in certain situations, um, you know, basically how we got here. And, and it seems like there's this tendency to basically only focus on the action. Like, you know, person A, you know, broke into this car and, you know, stole a wallet without understanding why person A broke into that car to stole a wallet or how the the things that happened to them when they were younger and the educational system and all of these different things along the way in many ways failed them and now all of a sudden you know they're here and they've done this action or allegedly done this action and we want to hold them you know basically solely responsible and so when you talk about mitigation and correct me if i'm wrong you're talking about basically explaining how we got here 
uh, in order to, you know, humanize and hope that whoever's making the decision, you know, takes that into account for maybe a less punitive sanction or maybe a, a sanction that may actually help them, uh, you know, and, and improve the situation. Is that right? Absolutely. So I think it's you've you've mentioned, you know, it's both looking backwards to understand how we got where we are. And it's also looking forward to understand what will really work moving forward. And I think it's important to recognize, let's just say the alleged action is something that the individual committed. That sure. they are that they did it. That they did it. Yep. That they're guilty. Um I would like to live in a society where none of us are held accountable for the rest of our lives for our worst day and our worst decision. Right. Um we all deserve an opportunity to atone, to take responsibility. Um, and to be judged by the whole person that we are. Sure. So that is a lot of the work that I do as an ADC contractor is ask uh, prosecutors, ask the district attorney, ask judges, um, you know, understand who this whole person is sitting in front of us. Um, you know, their strengths as well as their weaknesses and what has been lacking in their life. You know, it's interesting that you say that. And I'm sure uh, in your area of law, you're very familiar with Brian Stevenson, um, uh, who is a uh, uh one of, if not, you know, the only person that I really consider one of my heroes. Uh, and he is very fond of saying, uh, you know, we're all more than the worst thing we've ever done. Um, you know, and in his examples, you know, we're talking about kids who have been accused of, of, of really horrific, you know, events, murders and things like that. And that, you know, even if you kill someone, you're more than, than just a killer. And if you steal something, you're, you're more than just a thief. And it's a really interesting topic because I think for most people, they don't want to be judged for the worst thing they've ever done. And, you know, maybe that's not killing someone or something, but, you know, almost to a person, I'd say that there's things that every person has done that they're not proud of, that they don't advertise and they may be mortified or embarrassed if people found out that they had done. Um, and so in their own lives, they, you know, view it as, well, I don't want to be judged for the worst thing they've ever done. But, um, you know, when it comes to criminal cases and especially some of the more high profile ones, they 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 kind of leave that at the door and they're immediately like, oh, this person did X and that is all they are. And they're like evil. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's really important the, the work that you're doing uh, to kind of you know shed a light on the, the holistic view of a person, um, you know, that they're a human being and they're 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 more than, you know, any one action or even more than any series of actions um, that kind of got them there. Um, what does your. Um, typical day look like? So are, are, is most of it spent meeting and speaking with juveniles and like learning about them? Uh, are you in court most days? Well, when COVID's not going on, you know, are you in virtual court currently? Um, or, or what is like a typical day to, you know, look like for you? Yeah. One of the reasons I love practicing the law that I practice and in the way that I do it is uh, I don't necessarily have a typical day. Um, when I'm doing the work that we've already discussed, the sort of mitigation work, uh, there's a lot of time spent at my computer, you know, reviewing records and writing up reports, uh, shooting off emails to defense team members. Um, when I am representing students in expulsion hearings um, or showing up at special education meetings, then I, in non-pandemic times, will be going to schools all around the state to do that work um, or school district buildings. Um, I also have the opportunity as Colorado Juvenile Defender Center's Education First Program Director to engage in uh, community partnership work um, with various local organizations, grassroots movement organizations, um, and to do some legislative advocacy work here and there. Uh, so I feel very fortunate in that I get a lot of spice in my day. Nice, nice. It's always nice to have that uh, variety. Um, my last question kind of about this topic before we, we move on is, um, it's a really fascinating area of law. And I, and I got to believe that, uh, at least some of our, uh, law student listeners are listening and are like, you know, that sounds really rewarding or, or kind of identifies with my values or my drive to, uh, you know, help in, in the fight for racial justice and social justice and class justice. Um, what advice for any law students that are kind of wanting to get into a similar, area of law, um, whether it's not necessarily exactly the same thing, but in this kind of realm, uh, what advice would you give to them? If I can only, it's tough to pick one. Um, right, right. I, you know, one piece, Do we of, have three hours. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, one piece of advice I got when I was, uh, you know, toying with the idea of opening my own practice, um, from a mentor and respected colleague, uh, is get ready to hustle. 
Um, and coming from law school, I think we all know what it takes to get through that. And it's not exactly easy. Right. Um, for anybody who wants to start their own practice, uh, the level of hustle you have to put into that is a whole other level. Um, and I specifically work at this intersection where I'm representing indigent clients, um, which means I work with uh, either state contracts or a nonprofit grant, um, which means this is not exactly a uh, high paying job. Right. You're, you're not, not going into this area of law to get rich. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I think in addition to being ready to hustle, be very in tune with yourself. Um, I'm sure other folks you've had on the show have talked about self-care practices yep. and the importance of really knowing, setting boundaries and knowing your limits, knowing what it takes to recharge your batteries. Um, and I, I think it's juggling those two things, hustling and taking care of yourself. Always really good advice. And yeah, we've, uh, that's one of the themes I think that a lot of different uh, guests on the show have talked about is that self-care uh, is 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 really important, and you know, taking care of yourself uh, so that you can you know be your best self and and be the best advocate you can for your clients. Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, two organizations that I know you're a part of. Um, I am familiar with both, um, but I, I'm I'm really interested to to kind of learn a little bit more uh, about them. So first, I'd like to talk a little bit about Colorado Attorneys Against. Uh, police violence. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is and kind of why you got involved? Sure. Colorado Attorneys Against Police Violence, or, or CAPV, as we call ourselves, um, is a loose coalition of attorneys um, from a broad array of practices. Um, we have a few criminal defense attorneys, a few civil rights practitioners. Um, we have had intellectual property attorneys um, and um, I think at, at, at some point we even have had labor and employment attorneys. Um, the, we rose um, in the wake of George Taylor, or, I'm sorry, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery's uh, murders in the, in the wake of their killings and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, as many people were awoken last summer, um, awoken not being a real word, but you know, sure. I yeah. think everybody understands I think what, I'm saying. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, there was a significant surge in activation amongst the legal community, and uh, some folks wanted to organize um, some sort of effort from the legal community showing solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, a few of us who have been plugged into racial justice issues and the Black Lives Matter movement um, for a long time, since this isn't, you know, Black Lives Matter didn't start in 2020. Right, right. You know, originally it dates back to 2014 and Michael Brown and and all that was going on in Ferguson. Um, so we, we kind of said, well, hold on a second. You know, there is a, a system of power wherein lawyers often center the conversation on ourselves. And if we really want to approach allyship and standing in, standing in solidarity um, with intention, then we need to make sure we're doing this in service to the community. Sure. Um, so a core tenet of the group is to elevate um, and amplify the voices of the community. Um, so not to center the conversations on us as lawyers, but to leverage our skills and our power as lawyers to do that amplification and elevation of voice. Um, so that's that's kind of the the broad structure of the group. Everything we do, um, it's it's beautifully by con consensus. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I think it's it's, it's really important. Uh, you know, the work that you guys are doing, and you know, will continue to do, um, because I really do think that lawyers, you know, rightly or wrongly, kind of occupy this this special place in America, and I compare it to doctors with public health issues. You know, people tend to trust doctors on public health issues. And even if it's not, you know, their specific practice area, you know, when the, a doctor, you know, talks about the coronavirus or a vaccine or anything else, or, you know, some type of healthy diet or whatever, they are given a level of credibility based on their occupation. And when lawyers, uh, you know, I think when you apply that to lawyers, on issues of law and justice and politics and power, 
Um, you know, like I said, for, for better or worse, I think that people tend to listen to lawyers and, you know, we have that, you know, credibility, but I think you make a really good point that, you know, just because we have that credibility doesn't mean that we need to be centralizing the activism about us, but rather to amplify the movements that are already there and the community activists that are proximate to these issues and are on are on the ground. Um, so it's really a fascinating, uh, you know, organization. And I was able to attend uh, uh, one of the protests uh, at Civic Center Park, where I, th- I believe Cat uh, V uh, kind of had a little march and spoke at, at one of those. Um, uh, protests, and that was it. Was really powerful listening to some of the attorneys, uh, people of color um, that were that were speaking there. Um, if there are law students or lawyers uh, that you know are listening to this and says, "Wow, that sounds like a really cool organization," something that I you know want to be a part of. What's the best way uh, to get involved? Um, you know, what does what does Cap V I guess need uh, in order to you know further uh, implement its mission, if you will. It's a fantastic question. Um, And as I mentioned before, we operate on consensus. Mm -hmm. Um, So our need shifts uh, based on the shifting dynamic of what's happening in society. Um, For me to sit here and say, here, I think the need is X. Right. um, right. I don't necessarily have the authority or the the premature of the group to do that. Um, But what I can say is if you're interested in getting more involved in the work that CAPV does, to elevate community voices and elevate the work of other organizations, um, feel free to reach out to me. I know that at the end of the episode, I'll provide some yeah. contact information. So um, feel free to reach out to me. If you know of other folks who are involved in CAPV, feel free to reach out to them and, and we can talk about how to integrate your into our work. Awesome. Uh, I'd like to uh, discuss another organization that I'm actually a little bit more familiar with, uh, having you know taught several of their uh, uh, classes myself, which is Lyric, uh, which stands for Learn Your Rights in Colorado, uh, a really excellent uh, organization that I've been uh, proud to be a part of for uh, a couple of years now. Um, but for uh, our listeners that don't know what Lyric is or what it does, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know kind of what Lyric is and, and kind of what it does for the community? Absolutely. So Lyric. Uh I'm on the board. We go into uh, high schools, middle schools, after school programs, again, in the non-pandemic time sure. <laughs> um, to teach young folk about their constitutional rights, specifically their fourth, fifth and sixth amendment rights and how to safely exercise those with law enforcement. Um, in the pandemic times, we do this through Zoom. Um, yeah. And uh, what was kind of the um, the impetus, if you will, to the creation of Lyric? Like what problem was it trying to address or at least help out on? Hannah Siegelprof and Michael Juba are the co-founders of Lyric, and they were public defenders together um, at the time, uh, both primarily focusing, and and they still do primarily focus on juvenile defense. Um, When they were still in the PD's office, uh, they identified that uh, they wished that they could kind of catch some of the issues that were coming up before they even became issues. Right. Um, and after a long time of brainstorming together and, and working together to figure out how to do that, they came up with the idea of Lyric. Um, you know, teach students how to protect themselves, um, how to protect their rights, and how to do that safely um, when, when interacting with law enforcement. And, you know, for, for people who are considering getting involved, uh, I'm, I'm just going to give a personal plug for this organization. It is uh, extremely rewarding to help young people understand their constitutional rights. And, um, you know, obviously with the pandemic, everything is kind of you know different, but I'm assuming that it'll eventually get back to some uh, relative normalcy. And it was, it was such a really cool experience for me. And, and it really depended on where I was going. So I, I, I've done, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 classes. And, uh, you know, some of them are in, you know, groups of 25 or 30 at like a high school or a middle school. Um, and that was such an interesting experience. Um, but then some of them at uh, kind of these like boys and girls clubs type uh, you know, either alternative to suspension programs or after school programs where you're really interacting with like two or three, maybe four individuals. Uh, some of them are a little younger. And to really just be able to sit down and have conversations with these young people um, was really rewarding and, you know, something that I think had a really big impact on, um, you know, how I view the law. Uh, how 
do people get involved? So I know one of the common questions when I've talked about Lyric with other attorneys is I don't do any criminal defense work. I don't do any juvenile work. You know, can I still help out with Lyric? Absolutely. And, and how, and how, I guess, do they go about getting that and what kind of training does Lyric offer? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you don't need to be a defense attorney. Um, you don't need to even practice in, in the, the criminal law system. Um, Lyric will be happy to, to have you, um, as a volunteer. Um, and Lyric does not allow people to go out and teach Lyric classes until they've gone through training and also shadowed a few classes, um, instructed by somebody who's already been volunteering for some time. The, uh, the instruction to be a trained Lyric volunteer is, is relatively brief. Um, it's maybe, you know, a one hour, two hour crash course on, again, fourth, fifth, sixth amendment rights, um, as well as a crash course on the standard PowerPoint that we use in all of our classes um, and how to teach that effectively. Um, one of the things that we've been doing during the pandemic is making those resources in terms of training volunteers more accessible. Um, so keep your eyes peeled on the Lyric website for that. Awesome. Awesome. And I, you know, like I said, having, having done a few of these, I've, I've taught with anything from like a, I think it was either a tax or a family law attorney. And, um, for our law student listeners, I know at least at DU law, you guys have actually, uh, and, and you fill me in on the details here, but I think there's either some type of program or something, but I know that there's been a lot of DU law students. I don't know if you guys are up at CU yet. Um, but, uh, that I've, I've taught classes with DU law students. So is this something that even law students can, can get involved in and, and participate in? Yes. So if you're a law student, specifically if you're a 1L or a 2L, um, keep your eyes peeled because we are recording this in what would be the tail end of the, the winter semester of two, 2021. Sure. Um, so 1L, 2L students, um, keep your eyes peeled for the next you know few semesters. Um, Hannah has been working together with Dean Freeman uh, to put on a class there that trains law students on how to teach a lyric class. I know that there are students from DU right now, from Sturm College of Law, who are, who are leading Lyric classes. And I believe Hannah is working on rolling out a similar initiative at, at CU. Awesome, awesome. And yeah, I, I uh, can't plug it enough. Uh, I know also, uh, and again, at least in pre-pandemic times, you guys do a uh, annual uh, fundraiser down at uh, uh, one of the breweries in Rhino. Our mutual friend. Our mutual friend. I was like, I know it's right down there. Um, and so if any listeners uh, you know, would like to support them monetarily, that's always something that you know these organizations can help out come out and, you know, get a, a, a nice craft beer and, uh, you know, support a, a worthy cause. They had a, I believe a, a silent auction at the last one that I was at and, and a bunch of different cool ways to get involved. Um, uh, our last topic today, and, and I think this will kind of bring us full circle to some of the stuff that you were talking about earlier at the beginning of, of our episode, um, is, is this idea of movement lawyering. Um, and you know, it's something that I think you can kind of hear of and, and kind of maybe guess where it's going, but what does movement lawyering kind of mean to you? And, and we'll kind of go from there. Sure. Uh, so often when I explain this, I start with uh, a more familiar term, I think for a lot of attorneys, which is client centered lawyering. Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, lawyers, we might know what we've studied. We might know how to use Westlaw or Lexis or, or Casemaker or whatever, um, and we might know how to very strictly apply facts to law and advocate for our client or put together a contract, whatever. Client-centered or client-focused lawyering would be, you know, what's going on for the person who has come to see me for help? Um, it's more than just this discrete legal issue. Yes, I have to address that, but let me try to understand really some of the collateral interests and really what's going on and, and get a holistic view of the person who's in my office. Right. Now, substitute client for movement. Um, and you will get almost the exact same concept. You know, what? why is this organization seeking legal assistance? Or if they haven't sought legal assistance, what can I as an attorney bring into this movement uh, based on my, my profession, my skills, my training, the privilege of my education to elevate the movement, to, to help take it to the next level without co-opting it, without centering it again, like we discussed earlier, on me and, and my agenda. Um, so it can get very complicated because I think as lawyers, we like having that discrete, uh, answer if for no other reason than ethics, who is my client? Right, right. What are they telling me to do? Um, so it can get very tricky. Um, but I think recognizing that, 
uh, again, if we approach a movement saying we're not necessarily representing anybody, we are skill sharing, we are adding to that movement based on what we have as assets. And, you know, I think this may, you know, be rather, rather obvious, but in uh, large movements, large groups, there's a, a diversity of thought, uh, even within that movement, you know, Black Lives Matter for uh, is a prime example, there are, you know, advocates uh, from BLM in, in different cities, or even within the same city that have different views and different ideas and, and different goals. And so it sounds like part of what a movement lawyer does is not necessarily try to impose their own views, but try to distill what the the movement is is seeking and trying to figure out how you can best be of of assistance. Is is that right? I think that's right, and I really appreciate you framing it that way because, uh, again, I think given our training, um, at least the typical uh, law school pedagogy, kind of imparts on us that the answer will always be in the law. Um, that. It'll be litigation, drafting legislation, um, or drafting a contract, or something like that. Some skill that is typically a legal skill. Realistically speaking, for movements, the law isn't always going to be the answer. Um, They might not always need a lawyer to flex their lawyer muscles. They might need a lawyer to help put together a flyer um, that distills the complex web of Fourth Amendment law into six bullet points that are relevant to protesting. Um, they might need, uh, somebody who can help prepare somebody for a media appearance, right? Um, you know, distill talking points. Um, so it might not always be the law that is the tool we reach for. The law is very much a hammer. And as we all know, not everything requires a hammer. Sometimes we need a scalpel. Sometimes we need a chisel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think again, by privilege and power of our education, we can contribute to movements by assessing, you know, what tool do we need right now? Am I the one to help provide this tool? Or am I just a warm body in the room because they need people power? And right. They need right. me to show up. Right. Uh, you know, this conversation has really uh, reminded me of one of the most powerful lessons that I learned at law school when I was at CU. Um, and it was it's told to me by a, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Ahmed White. And he uh, taught criminal law. He also taught labor law uh, up at CU Law. And he, it was one of the 1L classes, and I can't even remember, it was a few weeks into law school. And uh, so, Professor White, if you're listening, this, this really hit home for me. Um, and he said, you know, the, the idea, the commonly accepted idea that lawyers are simply neutral warriors for black and white letter law uh, is a lie. And it's a lie that is, is commonly taught uh, throughout law schools and throughout our, our system. And that the idea that we are essentially just supposed to walk into any situation and neutrally apply the law, um, you know, it just simply isn't true because it misses a, a larger truth, which is that the law was written by people. You know, people with that experience racism and classism and power dynamics and power structures. And if you go to law school simply to be someone who neutrally applies the law, you're really missing out on what we were talking about earlier, kind of the social responsibility of a lawyer. And it sounds like this the movement lawyering um, in, in some aspects is really addressing that question, that it's not just about what the law is, but it's what the law should be and how we can, as lawyers, empower communities, empower non-lawyers, empower movements to build a more just society and that that is really a, a higher calling for you know legal professionals. Absolutely. The law is a self-sustaining power structure. Um, and I'm not going to get over here and, you know, get on a soapbox spouting sure. anarchist ideology. Right, right, but, right, right. Um, I, you know, the people, as you say, who wrote the laws, um, whether you want to date back to 1776 before then, more right. recently, by and large, you know, wealthy white male. Sure. Right. It's, and, and that's true. I think what we're seeing in, you know, movement space right now and in our society, one of the greatest tensions and without getting too political here um, is as we're seeing an increase in representation, an increase in voice to those folks who have been traditionally marginalized and historically oppressed in our society, we are seeing a progressive shift in the law and we're seeing attention as there's pushback on that. Uh, and I think when we look at the politics over 
the last however many years you want to count them, uh, but especially recently, um, there is that tension between how do what happens when we increase representation and we we amplify the voices of those who have been pushed to the margins, uh, when the folks who have the self-sustaining power structure are trying to cling to that. And it's it's been really interesting, you know, for me as someone who's been uh, you know active in the bar association and. Uh, you know, really, uh, I think something that's made me really happy and, and hopeful for the future is how much all of this is kind of coming together in this moment. Um, you know, the the CBA uh, in, in, in Colorado, which is not the world's most diverse state, uh, in the lawyer profession, which is not the world's most diverse profession in not the world's most diverse state. Right. Um, you know, we, we hadn't always, I mean, to be, I mean, it's just honest, we hadn't always done a very good job uh, on, on a lot of these topics. Um, and, you know, over the last couple of years, I think we've seen uh, a real increase on, on the focus of not only paying lip service to DEI, you know, initiatives, but making sure that diverse individuals are leading those initiatives and that, you know, oftentimes the best thing a lawyer can do and as someone, um, you know, like myself, who I know you guys are just hearing my voice, but I have pretty much every, you know, privilege that a person can have as a, you know, straight white male, you know, raised in an upper middle class family is oftentimes just listening. You know, and, and now we have a, a podcast uh, that I will, you know, give a shout out here for Our Voices, uh, which is really promoting diversity in the legal profession. Uh, I know the CBA YLD has done some really excellent uh, TED Talks uh, about these kind of diversity um, issues. And I think that is carrying over into the way that people view the law. And people see things like, you know, what happened with George Floyd and different, uh, you know, other aspects and be like, you know, to the extent that that was the law, then maybe the law was wrong. You know, maybe we need to, you know, get proximate to these these movements to see how we can, you know, change that for, you know, going forward. Um, and it sounds like that really is is kind of what you decided to do and kind of your your practice area uh, is is in service, I guess, of that idea. Absolutely. Um, I think you're 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 hitting it on the head. I mean, look, we're two white guys, two lawyers who are white right. talking right now um, about these issues. And um, that that is the traditional problem. And I think, as you say, uh, it's really important that we, um, you and I specifically, given our identities, our privileges and, and the powers that that we have, are ready to listen anytime th that I find myself pushing back on a concept in a conversation. Um, I instead of immediately voicing that, inquire where is that where is that coming from? Where is this discomfort coming from? And I check that. Um, I think it's also really important to not show up to the work expecting that somebody else will tell you what to do or that somebody else will have the answers. I think it is this balance of showing up ready to do the work, ready to hustle, um, and having some ideas, but then being also aware of our identity and being ready to listen, as you said. And, and, and I guess to, to kind of supplement that as, as well is, you know, to my fellow privileged uh, individuals, it can sometimes feel uncomfortable, right? This is, it's not like you can just flip a switch and everything, you know, that you've learned, you know, you're going to unlearn and that every, you know, it, it I was a person, you know, and they, uh, I can't remember the, the term off the top of my head, um, middle, moderate male confidence. I can't remember what the, the but basically there is this, uh, the thing, you know, I have never had a problem raising my hand in class. Like I volunteer to answer every question. And so I have this, you know, as soon as I walk into a room and hear something like my hand always wants to shoot up and be like, let me offer my opinion. And it has been uncomfortable for me, but important, I think, for me to experience being in the room and be like, you know what, Kevin, you don't have anything to add to this conversation. Just listen. Like, just spend the whole meeting listening. And, and you know, I'm not perfect. And so, you know, sometimes I do feel like myself, like raising my hand and kind of jumping in in a conversation. Um, but it's, it's, it's a process. And so for any of our listeners, um, you know, that are, are trying to get involved in this kind of work or, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to instantly just click for you. Um, and it's okay to feel uncomfortable and it's okay to be less than perfect. Um, as long as you're kind of, uh, I think striving in that direction. Um, 
Well, uh, Ellie, thank you so much for coming on. I don't think we've had a, an episode uh, quite like this, um, and it's a really super fascinating area of law that you're in, and it's it's such an important problem, um, and it's one that's you know really been on you know unfortunately for you know negative reasons because all of these you know terrible atrocities keep happening to people of color, and we keep seeing these same things reinforced. But it's one that's really been uh, at the top of the the public's kind of uh, imagination if you will. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you were correct earlier. Uh, we like to end each episode uh, the same way. Um, if anyone is interested in getting in contact with you, uh, either about uh, Colorado Attorneys Against Police Violence, uh, Lyric, uh, your practice area, movement lawyering, um, you know, any of those topics, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Absolutely. Please, please do reach out to me. Um, I love working with younger attorneys, with with students to uh, brainstorm um, for our DU students out there um, who are interested in learning more about movement lawyering, uh, which is a practice of elevating the voices of folks who are not lawyers and decentering the lawyer's voice, me being a lawyer, and also a conversation about racial and social justice, um, which necessarily involves a centering of voices from those who are not white males, myself being a white male. I really encourage you to reach out to Dean Lexi Freeman. She helped me understand what movement lawyering is, and she regularly runs a course with her husband at the law school. Uh, for all law students in Colorado and elsewhere, um, and other young lawyers, please, please, please reach out to your local chapters of the National Lawyers Guild. This is an organization that has been doing movement and client-centered progressive lawyering for decades. Um, and for those who are interested in national organizations that have helped me formulate my understanding of racial justice-driven movement lawyering, um, especially in the fight to end the school-to-prison pipeline and against our police and carceral states, um, I recommend looking up the work of Judith Brown Dianis and Advancement Project, as well as the work of Marbury Stolly Butts and Law for Black Lives. Um, you can reach me at my practice, which is elliezweibellaw at gmail.com. That's E-L-I-E-Z-W-I-E, -E -E, B as in Bravo, E as in Echo, L as in Lima, law at gmail.com. Or you can reach me uh, at my CJDC, my Colorado Juvenile Defender Center uh, email address. That's ellie at cjdc.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for all the important work uh, that you're uh, doing for our community. Thank you so much for having me and for carving out space for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Get legal with it.